I want to start this morning with a a game. Uh, The Greek word phobia means fear. I want to test some of your roots. Some of you may have known a lot of Latin or a lot of Greek. These might come easier to you. I'm going to give you a word and then I want you to tell me that's the phobia of. The fear of what? I'm going to start easy and then I'm going to go hard. So, I think they do that in uh, game shows, right? Who wants to be a millionaire? I think they probably go easy and then the last questions are pretty hard. I haven't watched that show but that's what I, I gather from that. Okay, first one. Uh, and if, if you know it, you just raise your hand and maybe we'll, we'll... And if you get it wrong, we'll all laugh at you. No, 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 it's okay, it's okay. You can try. All right. And, and particularly, maybe some of these kids might know in these early ones. All right. Claustrophobia. Yeah, I knew. Nathan. Fear of small space. Okay, here it goes. Arachnophobia. You're, you're late. Yes, Jared. Fear of spiders. Good. All right. Germophobia. Conrad, what's germophobia? Fear of germs. Okay, I kind of made that one up. I don't think that one's really, but but it's a real fear, though, so we know that. All right, how about this? Astrophobia. McKaylee. Close. You're kind of getting the idea. Astrophobia. Yes. Close. Astrophobia. Hannah, Hannah, you should know this one, okay? Astrophobia, space, stars, weather. What is it? Fear of tornadoes. Fear of fear of weather. Lightning and thunder. Okay, is really the the fear there. More li- lightning. Astra is kind of. All right, here comes some harder ones. Acrophobia. Fear of heights. Very good. Okay. Trypanophobia. You don't know that one, Logan. <laughs> Logan's like, yeah, I know it. That was a hard one. Trypanophobia. Huh? Fear of tripping. No, the nurses. Yes, Judy? Yeah, fear of sharp objects. Injections. Okay. Ophidiophobia. Ophidiophobia. You don't know these. Chris, Stevie, do you know it? Ophidiophobia? It's something. Ophidiophobia. Fear of... Not smells, that's a good guess, so. Ophidophobia. Okay, close. Not, not quite. Fear of snakes. Agoraphobia. Fear of the what? Yeah, large spaces, ground spaces, big, big spaces. Situations, difficult. Sinophobia. No, not fear of signs. Sinophobia. C-Y-N-O-phobia. Animal lovers. Fear of dogs. Okay, here's, here's like the, here's, who wants to be a millionaire? This is the big one. Triskaidekaphobia. Okay, you got it. Alright, you're, you'll be a millionaire. How, you guys just knew that. Good. These are, are fears. There are lots of fears that don't have names. Everyone has fears, right? You fear losing your job. You fear dying, loneliness, uncertainty, failure, making decisions. Fear of conflict, fear of rejection, fear of public speaking. They can go on and on and on. In fact, in this life, we will have fears. Now, some fears are good fears, and some fears, quite frankly, are are bad fears. We're going to see both of them here this morning. If you haven't done so, I invite you to open your Bibles to Mark chapter 4. And are walking through the, the Gospel of Mark. 
We've come to the end of chapter 4, and by the way, I'm going to do all of chapter 5. So I wanted to print that all for the children's notes, and that's pretty small, right? Those parents, you can kind of lean over there, look at the children's notes, kind of... I know some of you adults probably can't even see those, but that's okay. We're going to go through a big section of, of Scripture because this whole idea of fear is, is a thread in these things. The big picture, the big idea of what's happening is Jesus is continuing to reveal who He is. We're just going to see the power of Jesus unleashed in tremendous ways in this text. Calming the sea. Unbelievable power of Jesus. Casting a legion of demons out of a man. Making a crazy man perfectly sane just shows the power of Jesus. Healing a woman who just touched the fringe of his garment from an ailment for ten years shows the power of Jesus. Healing a daughter, a little girl, a twelve-year-old who is dead and now has come to life. That shows the power of Jesus. And so that's the, that's the big thing. It's Mark chapters 1-8. through eight. It's trying to show who Jesus is. He is our servant, but He is the Son of God. He is God Almighty is who He is. And then from chapter 8 and following, it's what He's doing or what, what He did. So who He is and what He's done is just continued revelation of who He is. But within that revelation, each of these have, uh, within today, even the power of Jesus, these have mentioned in every single one of these stories and situations, both fear and faith. And so I wanted to kind of chase that through fear and faith this morning. It's my title of my, my sermon, Fear and Faith. I want to look at the first scene, Jesus stills the sea, and then I'll get to my point, what I'm going to say later. Verse 35, on that day, when evening came, he said to them, let us go over to the other side. Leaving the crowd, they took him along with them in the boat, just as he was, and other boats were with him. And there arose a, a fierce gale of wind, and the waves were breaking over the boat so much that he him, so that the boat was already filling up. And Jesus himself was in the stern, asleep on the cushion. And they woke him and said to him, "Teacher, do you not care that we are perishing?" And he got up and rebuked the wind and said, "Hush, be still." And the wind died down, and it became perfectly calm. And he said to them, Why are you afraid? Do you still have no faith? They became very much afraid. And they said to one another, Who is this that even the, the wind and the sea obey Him? It's a great story. It's a story, in fact, that Mark, Matthew tells this story. Luke tells this story. In fact, all these stories are good stories because Matthew and Luke both contain all four of these stories all right in a row, all the same thing. The calming of the storm, the garrison demoniac, the woman with the blood, and Jairus' daughter raised from the dead. Puts the power of Jesus on great display. The setting comes at the end of a very long day. It says in verse 35, on that day when evening came. He just finished teaching to a large crowd of people. We saw that in chapter 4. The, the crowds of people were ministering and were demanding on Him. In fact, even at one point, you remember in, in chapter 3 where He had a, a boat to be prepared so He could get out in the boat and, and get away from the crowd a little bit if He needed to. People were so much pressing on to Him in chapter 3, verse 20, one time that they couldn't even have time to eat. I mean, such was the demands upon Jesus. And now it came evening and Jesus says, let's get in the boat, let's go to another region. Now, they were ministering up in the northwestern portion, part of the Sea of Galilee. And then they crossed the lake down the 
see uh, all the way down to the southeastern side is, is where they went to Gadara in the Decapolis um, region down there, Gentile country. Uh, I think Jesus in one regard wanted to, to leave and go away because um, the ministry was pressing upon Him. I, I think also just His own, own well-being may have been a, an aspect of this here. I mean, I say this because Jesus was probably exhausted, asleep in the boat. I mean, this, this boat ride down, you know, whatever it was, maybe 13 miles, not a long ways that they, they went, depending upon where in Gadara he was. It wasn't a, a nice, easy, rocking kind of style of boat ride which puts people to sleep and puts babies to sleep or being rocked back and forth in their mother's arms on the rocking chair. No, this was a, a violent storm in a small open boat. When you talk about boat here, think rowboat. It looks like Jesus went with his disciples and, and other boats were with him. I mean, it's other people. So we're, we're talking, you know, maybe 10 people in a boat, maybe 13, if they've excavated some boats from the, the time of Jesus. These are just small rowboats, if you will, with a sail on them, maybe a little bit bigger, but they're not, they're not huge, you know, great big giant cruise ships. So every wave is just going to toss them quite a bit. And look at how, Mark describes this storm. There arose a fierce gale of wind. And the waves were breaking over the boat so much so the boat was already filling up. You see, the Sea of Galilee is, um, is uniquely situated around mountains and, and such that over the Sea of Galilee makes this great wind tunnel. And, and if the winds blow there, they can blow and kick up a storm very quickly. And it looks like they, they took off when it was okay. And then while they were out there, the storm kicked up very quickly. Um, high winds, violent storms. So I, I want you just even to try, to try to place yourself there. Try to place yourself in this boat when the waves are whipping up and pretty soon whoosh and whoosh are coming and they're splattering the waters on them. Can you feel it? I mean, can, can you see it? Can you, can you taste the water? Can, the, the, the coldness of the water. Can you hear the loud, crouching, crashing waves? Can you see the boat taking on water and filling up? And it's loud and it's going. And Jesus is asleep on the stern in the back of the boat, probably getting wet. I suspect He was so exhausted. Looks gives a good picture of the humanity of Jesus. It's the only thing really that can explain that He would sleep through all of this. And while Jesus was at peace, His disciples were terrified. Verse 38, They woke Him and said to Him, Teacher, do you not care that we are perishing? Now, that's not how they said it. Picture, loud waves, it's all blowing. Teacher, do you not care that we are perishing? And they're trying to shout over the, over the sounds of all the waves, trying to get His attention. Okay, look, we're about to die, Jesus. How is it you don't care? Significant that these disciples were fearful because a handful of them, we don't know exactly, but we know at least four or five, maybe half of them were fishermen. They'd been through many storms. They fished the Sea of Galilee, so they knew what took place in the Sea of Galilee. And for them to be afraid of this storm meant that it was a, a really big storm. And Jesus, I think probably groggy from his sleep, stands up in the boat or he gets up is, is what it says. He rebuked the wind, hush, be still. And two miracles took place that day. First of all, the wind stopped blowing. 
I mean, that would have been enough in some regard to, to have Jesus control the wind and just say, wind, stop blowing. But if the wind would have stopped blowing and that was the only miracle, then the waves are still going to slosh around for right, a, a good time, maybe a, another hour or so until everything calms down. But when Jesus said, hush, be still, not only did the wind stop, but the water just flat. It's the power of Jesus. And then Jesus addresses the issue of the thread of application I'm trying to get this morning. It says, verse 40, Why are you afraid? Do you still have no faith? Here's my first point. Fear without faith. That's where the disciples were. They were afraid without faith. They lacked faith. They lacked belief. They lacked trust. And to Jesus, their lack of faith is why they are afraid. There's a connection here. Why are you afraid? Do you lack faith? If they had faith, then they wouldn't be afraid. They wouldn't be afraid of the nature that's around them. They wouldn't be afraid of perishing in the Sea of Galilee. The natural application to us really is that we ought not to fear life circumstances as well. Whatever kind of fears I mentioned in the early part, whether it's the early part of my message today, I mean, some of that is, is hard. If you're claustrophobic, you're just who you are. But there are other things in life that, that naturally come up. You fear losing your job or dying or loneliness or uncertainty or failure. I mean, those are the sorts of things that, that just are in the warp or woof of life that we ought to say we ought not to fear those. But even these other things, being feared of snakes, maybe being, being feared of storms. Trust in Jesus means we should probably be able to overcome the fear in storms. Fear of plane flying, right? We trust in Jesus. We should be ready to overcome those things. The Bible often commands us not to fear. Do not fear, for I am with you. Isaiah 41, verse 10. Isaiah 43, verse 5. Do not fear, for I will help you. Do not fear, for I have redeemed you. I have called you by name and you are mine. What God says is don't fear. I've got you in my hand. One psalm says, I forget what it is, Psalm 27. Something about the, the Lord is with me. He has me. What can man do to me? I will not fear. The Bible often says that. Jesus said, don't worry. Worry is just fear about the future. Don't worry. If God so clothes the grass of the field which is alive today and tomorrow is born in the furnace, will He not much more clothe you, O man of little faith? He calls us to trust in Him. Why? Because God is with us. And Jesus, it's very interesting, Jesus was right there in the boat. And, and when they had problems, they turned to the carpenter because they knew that he maybe didn't know a lot about fishing but knew a whole lot about the weather. Even though Jesus had taught them, even though they'd seen the miracles of Jesus, they still didn't believe. And by the way, we're going to see that through all the Gospel of Mark. Just again and again and again and again. Jesus is going to show himself who he is and they're like not going to get it. They're like knuckleheads. They're like, really? How does that work? They won't believe. So the Gospel of Mark is a, is a Gospel really to press us to believe. Even those who were there had difficulties with that. In this instance, their lack of faith turned into fear. And I just say, church family, Jesus is with us. We ought not to fear the promise of the Great Commission, right? I'll be with you always. Therefore, we should not fear. Hebrews 13.5 
I will never desert you, nor will I ever forsake you. Hebrews 13.6 The Lord is my helper. I will not be afraid. What will man do to me? Those are just logically. Just think logically. God is with me. God is my helper. What can man do? Man can't do anything. I shall not be afraid. God has promised, I will never desert you. I will never forsake you. We ought to trust Him. Well, that's not the end of the story though. Because I don't think that's the big application. The big application comes in verse 41. Because on the one hand, they were afraid of nature, but now they are afraid of Jesus. In fact, their fear of Jesus is even more than their fear of the waves. Verse 41, They became very much afraid and said to one another, Who then is this that even the wind and the sea obey Him? Any fear of drowning was lost. They were now fearful of Jesus. And notice that they identify the the two miracles. Even the wind and the sea obey Him. The two miracles. And they are, are really scared of Jesus. They've been walking with Jesus for some time. They'd seen His miracles. Countless demons driven from people. Countless people healed of their diseases. Lepers healed. Paralytics healed. Withered hands restored. But nothing compares to this awesome power of Christ in calming the storm. I've heard John MacArthur say often, what's more fearful than the storm outside your boat? Jesus inside your boat. They were fearful because they didn't believe. They had no faith. Well, let's continue on. We see in the Gerasene demoniac, we're going to see fear without faith a second time. This is a, a great story as well. It says verse five, in chapter 5, verse 1, they came to the other side of the sea into the country of the Gerasenes, sometimes called Gadara. That's down southeastern part of the Sea of Galilee. It's called the Decapolis. Ten cities are part of that region down there. As I said, a Gentile region. In verse 2, we see, when he got out of the boat, immediately a man from the tombs with an unclean spirit met him. We'll find in verse 6 that he's actually running up to meet him. But verse 3, then we see, some history of this man. And he had his dwelling places among the tombs. And no one was able to bind him anymore, even with a chain. Because he had often been bound with shackles and chains, and the chains had been torn apart by him, and the shackles broken in pieces, and no one was strong enough to subdue him. Constantly, night and day, he was screaming among the tombs and in the mountains and gnashing himself with stones. Jesus gets off this boat, and this wild man comes rushing after them with an unclean spirit. He's demon-possessed. We'll find out later that it's many demons possessed this man. The history, though, shows on several occasions that the Gerasene people had actually been able to capture this man, put him in shackles and chains, and somehow he broke through them. He escaped. Their iron technology wasn't probably what it is nowadays, but he was such, such endued with some spiritualistic, demonistic strength, he just broke through the shackles and then ran among the tombs. No one, verse 4, was strong enough to subdue him. Instead, he spent his days screaming and gnashing himself. Luke tells us this man was naked. Too wild for clothes. Just ripped the clothes off him. He didn't care about that. Matthew tells us he had a buddy with him who was likewise demon-possessed. And these two guys, as Matthew's account says, were so wild and so uncontrollable, there's a, there's a road that went by the tombs. No one could pass by that road because these men would encounter them and scare them half to bits and they'd have to turn around and go back home. These men stopped up a road because they were so crazy and wild. It's what demons do to individuals. They make them crazy. 
do people harmful and destructive and bizarre things. It's what demon possession is. And so picture the scene as described in verse 6. Seeing Jesus from a distance, he ran up and bowed down before him. Now, I'm not sure about you, but I'm trying to put yourself in this situation, right? A wild man, his hair is probably going all over the place, his teeth are probably yucky, he's probably got a beard, he's stark naked, and he's running up to you. I don't know about you, but my goosebumps, you know, all over my skin, I bet you, whoa. And he runs up and falls down before Jesus, and then he and Jesus start having this conversation. They start going back and forth with each other. Verse 7, And shouting with a loud voice, this man said, What business do we have with each other, Jesus, Son of the Most High and God? I implore you by God, do not torment me. For he had been saying to him, Come out of this man, you unclean spirit. And he was asking him, What is your name? And he said to him, My name is Legion, for we are many. And he began to implore him earnestly not to send him out of the country. You can picture this. right? He's saying, Jesus is saying, Come out of this man. And, he, and he's saying, do you torment me? No, come out of this man. Do you torment me? And there's this, this dialogue back and forth and they're trying to figure out, don't send us away. And then I think the demons, when they figured that they were lost, saw the swine had a plan. Verse 11. Now, there was a large herd of swine feeding nearby on the mountain. And the demons implored him, saying, send us into the swine so we may enter them. And Jesus gave permission. They said, Okay. And coming out of this man, the unclean spirit entered the swine and the herd rushed down the steep bank and into the sea, about 2,000 of them, and they were drowned in the sea. Shows that this man had up to words of 2,000 demons. No wonder he's so out of control. That didn't escape the notice of the herdsmen who were watching this whole thing and what happened. Jesus continues to reveal who He is and His power. So they go back, verse 14 says, and report it in their city and in their country. And the people came to see what it was that had happened. And they came to Jesus and observed the man who had been demon-possessed sitting down, clothed in his right mind. The very man who had had the legion and they became very frightened. They became frightened. And those who had seen it described to them how it had happened to the demon-possessed man and all about the swine. And they began to implore Him to leave their region. I want you to notice here, the townspeople respond in some regard exactly like the disciples responded. The, the townspeople saw the power of Jesus unveiled. If you look here, it even talks about how they described how they, they seen that this demon-possessed man was there and they encountered this, this, this conflict between Jesus and this man. And then he pointed, Jesus pointed to the swine and, and all of a sudden these swine start acting up and they go down and this demon-possessed man is, is calm and he's sitting there in his right mind. And the herdsmen are interpreting for the people it's the power of this man that's doing that. They saw the power of Jesus and they became frightened. What's more fearful than a demoniac who runs around naked in the tombs? Is the man who's stronger than the demoniac. And they were fearful of Jesus. They became frightened at Jesus. They saw Jesus up close and personal and they didn't want Him. They said, get out they begged him to leave the regions. It's too much. We don't want that power in our town. So get out. What an amazing thing. 
I think oftentimes we can think that those who see clearly the presence of God will surely embrace Him and touch Him and believe in Him, right? Such is not the case. So let's get rid of the notion if people would just see God totally for who He is, they would believe in Him. Because these people see Jesus for who He is and they want Him out. They don't want any part of Him. And we see this other portions of Scripture in, in Revelation. It's interesting. Several times, God is pouring forth His judgment, whether it's the trumpets or the bowls. And it's clearly God who's bringing mass destruction upon the earth and people upon the earth are not repenting of the works of their hands. Instead, they're blaspheming God who's bringing torment on them, whereas their repentance would bring a softening on God. They're still hard. And here these people are hard against Jesus. Or the story in Luke 16 about the rich man and Lazarus, right? The rich man enjoyed the pleasantries of this life and Lazarus didn't, but in hell, the rich man was tormented after this life, after they died. The rich man was tormented in hell and Lazarus was in Abraham's bosom. And he said, oh, I didn't know it would be so bad. Go and warn my brothers. And Abraham says, well, they have Moses and the prophets. He said, no, 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 no. If someone rises from the dead and tells them, they'll be convinced. He said, no, no, if they, if they don't believe Moses and the prophets, they won't believe even if someone rises from the dead. In other words, see what he's saying? Even miracles and great signs of God's power aren't sufficient to convert people, to change their heart. It's God's Word that does that every bit as much as anything else. They have Moses and the prophets. The Scriptures are sufficient to induce faith. And these people saw Jesus saw a sign, saw a wonder, and hated it. They said, get out of our town. And Jesus did great things for them. He gave them the road back. He restored this man to sanity. He was in his right mind. He would be a productive member of society from that point on. And they wanted nothing of it because they had fear without faith. Yet, all was not lost. Not all refused to believe because this man did. Look at verse 18. As he was getting into the boat, the man who had been demon-possessed was imploring him that he might accompany him. I want to go with you, Jesus. You've done so much for me. I want to go. And Jesus did not let him, but he said to him, Go home to your people and report to them what great things the Lord has done for you and how he had mercy on you. Jesus had transformed this man where once he was tormented and wild and out of control, now he had faith in Jesus. He wanted to go with Jesus. But Jesus said, No, no, no. You tell them what... The Lord has done for you. By the way, in allusion to His divinity. Go tell them what the Lord, go tell them what I have done for you. Go tell them how He had mercy on you. It's very interesting here. In in the Gospel of Mark, sometimes Jesus said, don't tell anybody, don't tell anybody, don't tell anybody. In fact, we're going to see that at the very end. Chapter 5, verse 43, He gave them strict orders um, that no one should know about this. Let no one know about this girl rising from the dead. Let's keep it quiet. I think the issue is, Jesus knows He's not going back to Gerasene anymore. He doesn't have to keep the crowds to a minimum in some regards so as to spread His teaching. And so He said, you go at it. You just spread it abroad. And I love this evangelistic methodology, which is the greatest form of evangelism. Just tell people what God has done for your soul. Tell people how God has been merciful to you. Right? John 9, the blind man who, who couldn't see and Jesus opened his eyes. He said, I don't know much. All I know is that I was blind, but now I see. And who did it? This man did it to me. And this man from Gadara, the Gerasenes, would have easily said, I was wild. These demons, they control me. I don't know what it is. But Jesus came along and He just he took them out and now He's made me sane. Look at what He's done. God has been so merciful to me. 
And you can say that testimony too. Just follow Ephesians 2. I was dead in my sins. I was a child of wrath like the rest. But God being rich in mercy because of His great love with which He loved me, even when I was dead in my transgression and sin, He made me alive together with Christ. I've been saved by His grace. I didn't deserve anything, but God has given me anything. He's been so good to me. He can be good to you too. Just believe in Him and trust in Him. And I think that's what this man did. Verse 20, in fact, even we see, and he went away and began to proclaim in the capitalists what great things Jesus had done for him and everyone was amazed. Now, whether they came to faith or not, I'm not sure. They were marveling that this wild man had become sane and in his right mind. And he was just spreading that message of what God had done for him. You think about his education in the Bible is very little, if at all. Gentile territory. He said one message, just look at what Jesus did for me. And he shames many of us and our boldness to speak with others. Well, let's move on to my second point. We see two miracles here which are closely linked. In fact, one miracle is started and before that miracle can happen, another miracle happens and then the final miracle is, is done. And in both these miracles, we're going to see fear with faith. First one was fear without faith and now we have fear with faith. We're going to see a good sort of faith. The disciples at the end of chapter 4 weren't trusting the Lord in their peril. Instead, they were fearful. The Gerasenes not trusting the Lord. They were fearful and now we see something different altogether. We see believing people coming to Jesus in their desperation, just trusting that perhaps He may help them. But they both exhibit some, some fear in the process it's a good fear. It's my second point. Fear with faith. They have the healthy sort of fear that, that fears the Lord. Throughout the Scriptures, we're commanded to fear the Lord. The beginning of knowledge is what the fear of the Lord is. Psalm 103. We read it several times. For as high as the heavens are above the earth, so great is the loving kindness towards those who fear Him. As a father shows compassion to his children... So the Lord shows compassion to those who fear Him. Right? There's this good fear of God that when it's healthy and when it's right, God looks upon us and, and blesses us. And a good, healthy fear of God leads to faith. And that's the faith we see here in verse 21. When Jesus had crossed over again in the boat to the other side. Okay? So He's going north, southeastern, again back up to northwestern, right up the top of the Sea of Galilee. He was there, a large crowd gathered around him, like always is the case, and so much so that he had to stay by the seashore because he could almost barely get in. Maybe the seashore was his refuge. Maybe we saw in chapter 4 also the seashore provided a natural amphitheater where he can do some of his teaching. But he's there by the seashore. We don't know if this is Capernaum or whether it's some other coastal town um, up there as well. We, we don't exactly know, but he, he was there. And then he would encounter this man, verse 22, one of the synagogue officials named Jairus came up and on seeing him, fell at his feet and implored him earnestly, saying, My little daughter is at the point of death. Please come and lay your hands on her so that she will get well and live. And he went off with him and a large crowd was following him and pressing in on him. So here Jesus is probably with the disciples, with His people, with this crowd, teaching them, doing His thing, healing some people. And this man comes, Jairus, one of those rulers in the synagogue. He was like a lay elder, if you will, like Phil or, or Darren. Um, 
God-fearing man, certainly. Not all Jewish leaders, by the way, were against Jesus. Maybe this man was for Jesus because he had a great need. His daughter was sick. And as so many had sought Jesus for health and healed them, so too, this man thought, hey, my daughter is sick, maybe Jesus can help. But, but check out how deeply sick his daughter was. <clears throat> she couldn't even come to him. She was so sick on the bed, couldn't even move her. And so he just said, can you please come to my house? Can you just, just lay your hands on her and touch her so that she will get well and live? There is, there's great faith that that man has. We'll see his fear a little bit later. But again, you've got to catch the emotion in this passage. I've tried to catch it with a C. I've tried to catch it with a demoniac. I'll try to catch it here. And I'll tug at the heartstrings of all fathers who have 12-year-old daughters. How many fathers here have 12-year-old daughters? Eliana, are you 12? Yeah. Cool. McKaylee, how old are you? I'm almost 12. Almost 12. Okay, Grant. How long? Like a month? Two months? How long, McKaylee? Half a year. Okay. So, Grant, you can think about this message half a year from now. How old's Rachel? Teens? Eleven. No, see, this doesn't apply to you either. Anyone else? It applies to me. It applies to me because Hannah is twelve. Exactly. So, how, how fortunate for me. But I don't like to think about this. Imagine your daughter. Imagine Hannah. Sick with some terminal disease progressed for some months, maybe some cancer of some type, maybe there's a leukemia of some type, who knows, and so much so that she's on her deathbed. I know that would shake me up. That would shake me to see her body dwindle from where she is and taller than Carissa now, which is very nice, but if she was, you know, withered up a little bit, you know, 60 pounds, it'd be hard. Hard for any parent. And that's, that's the emotion coming here. And, that, and, and I think I'd be doing what this meant, going any place. I'd be scouring the internet, seeing what I could do. I'd probably be wasting her cancer is probably what I would be doing. Just reading all about cancer, reading all about this, and what can I do to help my daughter? And that's what this man does. He, he's desperate. Any place. And he hears of this miracle worker who's healed lots of things. He's got all this testimony about all these, these people that he has healed. And, and so he comes with, with, with right logic. And he comes, perhaps Jesus will come and place his hand on the daughter. And you see, in some sense, he was scared, fearing for the life of his daughter. We'll see his fear come up later. Also, you see his faith, right? He's going to the one who can heal. He's on his face, even, pleading him. You see that there, falling at his feet, verse 22. Pleading earnestly that Jesus would come, believing that just a touch is sufficient to heal her. And remarkably, Jesus follows. And the whole big crowd was following around. And, and you even get the sense here, verse 24, that everyone's pressing in on him. So it's like this, this giant mob going, going along the way. They didn't spread out very much. Crowd rushing upon them. And on the way, then insert this issue of the woman, verse 24. Not only was Jairus desperate, this woman also was very desperate. She comes in fear with faith to Jesus. And here's how Mark tells the story, beginning in verse 25. A woman who had a hemorrhage for 12 years. Okay, Now, what exactly the connection is between the 12-year-old child and the 12 years of hemorrhage, I'm not exactly sure. I'll get at it a little bit later what is significant, though. And had endured much at the hands of many physicians and had spent all that she had 
and was not helped at all, but rather had grown worse. After hearing about Jesus, just like the centurion, like Jairus, she came up in the crowd behind him and touched his cloak. For she thought, if I just touch his garments, I will get well. And immediately the flow of her blood was dried up and she felt in her body that she was healed of her affliction. Right now, unlike Jairus, this woman is unnamed. Unlike Jairus, she's not a woman of standing. Unlike Jairus, she was probably unclean from whatever issue of blood this was. Mark is pretty discreet, just says it was a hemorrhage. Um, we know that it's just some kind of flow of blood, maybe a woman's flow of blood that's just not stopping somehow. It made her unclean, excluded from worship. So here's Jairus leading the worship. She can't even come into the worship because Leviticus 15, verses 25 to 27, would keep her excluded. And she tried everything to solve her physical problems. She'd gone to physician after physician after physician for 12 years looking for help. None could help. In fact, if anything, it got worse. Even what it said there, that it grew worse at the end of verse 26. So, when the earthly physicians can't help her, she went to the great physician. And great was her faith. If I just touch her garments, if touch his garments, I'll be made well. Now, that's not unfounded either. Just as Jairus bringing the, the issue of his daughter to him wasn't unfounded either. In chapter 3, verse 10, Talked about how Jesus healed many. The result that all who had afflictions pressed around Him in order to touch Him. They just wanted to touch Him because they felt like some healing was flowing from Jesus. And so she probably heard of that. She probably thought about that. She just said, if I just touch... And she had faith. She didn't even have to touch skin. She just had to touch His garment. Just the edge of His garment. And it happened. She touched the garment. And her plight was successful. She touched the garment, verse 27. Verse 29 says instantly that she was made well. Her flow of blood dried up. And that was the power of Jesus. He can calm the storm with the Word. He can cast out thousands of demons with the Word. And by faith, He just touches garments and He can be healed. There's a lot going on there in terms of God's sovereignty, knowing you're coming by faith and just touching His garments. But, but just a touch. That's all Jesus, Jairus wanted too, right? He just wanted Jesus to come and touch his 12-year-old girl. And that's really, by the way, all that we all need. We just need the healing touch of Jesus. We need Jesus to cleanse us and make us whole. <clears throat> and though today we can't touch Him physically, we can know His healing power. I think the key is we just need to be desperate enough. We need to come like the woman. We need to come like Jairus. And so are you desperate enough? Have you reached that end? A small group at our house, Friday night, we were going over the book, Praying Life. And um, I, I said, this is like the, the key to the book. I forget what chapter it is. Who knows? 23 or 20, I don't know what chapter it is. But anyway, he tells about how he and his wife prayed Psalm 121 before the birth of their daughter Kim. And many of you read this book, so I'm just kind of going over it. If you haven't read the book, I say go read the book. But it, they prayed Psalm 121, The Lord is your keeper, the Lord is a shade in your hand. He'll, the sun won't smite you by day, nor the moon by night. He'll guard you, He'll protect you from this time forth and forever. And just says, God, protect Kim. Make, make, make her be a safe child. And actually, when she was born, she was a troubled child. Difficult. Uh, autism. Her muscles didn't function. She couldn't talk. She didn't talk until she was over 20 years old. And trials and trials. And then it was about 20 years later that Paul said he was studying for Psalm 121 in the kitchen to counter 
had his wife's Bible open and, and she'd kind of make a note there about praying Psalm 121 for Kim, who, by the way, it just required a lot of care, just a very difficult, special needs child. Um, this book is filled with illustrations of everything they learned from her. But anyway, he was writing this Bible study and he said, ah, He did it! God answered our Psalm 121 prayer because He kept us from evil because He made us dependent and desperate because of everything that Kim had done for them. And so he had to depend. They had to depend upon, upon the Lord in every minute. They're going paycheck to paycheck. And, and it, it really directed him towards ministry-wise rather than towards this accounting business that was going and making some money and uh, really caused them to trust in the Lord in all things. And that really is what we need. We need to be desperate enough. We need to be desperate enough. Come looking for the healing touch in Jesus. Well, she was healed. And then she was afraid. Verse 30. Immediately Jesus, perceiving in Himself that the power preceding Him had gone forth, turned around in the crowd and said, Who touched my garments? His disciples said to Him, You see the crowds pressing you? And you say, Who touched me? And He looked around to see the woman who had done this. And the woman, here it is, fearing and trembling, aware of what had happened to her, came and fell down before Him and told Him the whole truth. And he said to her, Daughter, your faith has made you well. Go in peace. Be healed of your affliction. It's right here where you see the link between fear and faith. She was coming with fear that was filled with faith. She, she believed and trust. And then Jesus exposed her amongst this crowd of people. Who has the audacity even touch? And she's fearful of Jesus in a very right way, in, a, in an honoring way, in a, in a serving way, told everything. And I'm sure she said, I've been 12 years of this illness and I, I just know Jesus. I, you are such such a great healer. If I just touch the fringe of your garments, I'm going to be made well. And Jesus then affirmed her faith. Your faith has made you well. Go in peace. And I just say this. Here's the application I'm going to pull from this 12-year thing. As I think about her talking about um, 12 years I've been at this illness. Let's trust the Lord for our healing. It may be a long time coming. Twelve years. I mean, can you imagine that? It means, say you get diagnosed with some ailment this week. Twelve years would put it in 2024. That's when you get healed. And try, yes, go to the physicians. Yes, try that. But this is a long time. This is a lot of patience. A lot of hardship. And yet, finally, Jesus healed her. So let's not, not let these time frames just pass us by, but... But they, they lead us to realize how long a trial this was. Like Joseph. You know, he was in prison like some 17 years. We read through Genesis 39 to 50 and we just think, oh, Joseph's in prison. He's been accused by Potiphar and that's all bad. And he goes, like, it's something like 17 years. And sometimes God's ways are a lot slower than we would want. We want, we want something now. But God teaches us, just like God taught Paul Miller patience and trust and dependence with his autistic child. Well, that story is wrapped up. If faith has made you well, go in peace. You're healed. There is belief. Uh, verse 35, then. Let's go back to Jairus. And it's interesting here is I think this woman would have delayed Jesus quite a bit because it even says here that he, she um, told him the whole truth. You maybe read there, told him everything. May have delayed this 
this trek to Jairus' house. A little bit like when Jesus heard that Lazarus was sick, John 11. He waited several days to make sure he died because he wanted to go for the glory of God. And Jesus, I think, was detained. I think it was all just fine with him because he knew that there would be a greater miracle if she died. I'm reading into that, but that's what I think happened because that clearly was in John 11. Anyway, verse 35. When he was still speaking, they came from the house to the synagogue official saying, Your daughter has died. Why trouble the teacher anymore? But Jesus, overhearing what was being spoken, said to the synagogue official, Do not be afraid any longer. Only believe. Here he is. Confronts the dynamic of fear and faith. News came his daughter had died and Jairus was fearful. Just fearful of, of life probably. Fearful of trepidation. What's it going to mean? I've, I've lost my daughter. Just scared. Just anxious maybe is kind of the, the implication here. Just unweary. And, and Jesus says, don't be afraid. Just believe. Let's let your faith cancel out and wipe out your, your fear. All is not lost. Jesus says, trust me. Jairus said, come to Jesus based on what he heard of Jesus. But Jairus hadn't heard of anybody raising from the dead. He just heard of people being healed. From his standpoint, he just thinks all is lost. Jesus says, no, no, no. Hope is not lost. And that's the way it is when, when trust is most difficult, isn't it right? When we think that all seems lost. When there's absolutely no hope, that's the time it's hardest to trust. That's the time Jesus is calling Jairus to trust. Okay, no, no hope of the daughter being made well. The, the logical thing to do would be, just like this man said, dismiss Jesus. Thank you for being willing to come. I appreciate your effort. You go on your way. I'll go home and mourn. But Jesus had other plans. This is what happened. Verse 37. And He allowed no one to accompany Him except Peter and James and John, the brother of James. So for some reason, just these three got to see it. I think because Jesus wanted to keep this quiet. Because it couldn't get out in, in Galilee. Otherwise, he couldn't teach. And that's what he was called for. Anyway, they were there. And um, they came, verse 38, to the house of the synagogue official. And he saw a commotion. And people were loudly weeping and wailing. It's common. When someone dies, they just professional wailers weeping, tearful. Anytime a child dies, this is the case. And entering in, he said to them, Why make a commotion and weep? The child has not died, but is asleep. Jesus hadn't even seen her so much. And they're saying, Yeah, right, we know someone who's dead when someone's dead. And the fact that they were laughing at him shows that she was really dead. She didn't just swoon. She was dead. They began laughing at him, but putting them all out, Jesus took along the child's father and mother and his own companions. So father, mother, Peter, James, John, Jesus, six people there into that room. He entered the room where the child was. Taking the child by the hand, he tenderly said to her, Talitha kum, which translated means little girl, I say get up. Just very soft and very gentle. Like for some reason, Hannah wanted to get up this morning and so I woke her up. At some... Was I gentle when I woke you up today, Hannah? Yeah. Come on, Hannah. Time to get up. Stroked her arm a little bit. Whispered into her ear. Said, you want to get up by 7 o'clock here? It's a little after 7. Can you, can you get up? And just as she starts to stir, so likewise, this little child who is 12 years old begins to stir. Immediately, verse 42, the girl got up probably faster than you did, Hannah. She's still like, leaning over to sleep, catch a few more Z's. But she began to walk. She was 12 years old and immediately they were completely astonished. And then he said, don't tell this. Shh. 
He gave them strict orders that no one should know about this. And he said that something should be given her to eat. Just a miracle of raising from the dead. You know, Jesus um, rose from the dead. But there were other people who rose from the dead as well. This one here, we know Lazarus was risen from the dead. Uh, I think there was one more. I can't quite remember. A little child raised from the dead. And Jesus, though, Himself really raised from the dead. And that is what we celebrate here this morning. As we celebrate the fact that Jesus has risen from the dead, this power that Jesus has, even to raise a girl from the dead, is just the same power that He has. And, and I want you this morning, as we reflect and turn and transition to the Lord's Supper here this morning, reflect upon the power of Christ, reflect upon your fear, reflect upon your, your faith. Four miracles show the power of Jesus. Calming the storm, casting out thousands of demons, healing with a touch, raising from the dead. This is the Christ we worship. We worship this glorious Jesus who is powerful in these ways. And if He can do these things, here's the implication, if He can do these things, we can certainly trust what He said, right? And Jesus Himself said, that I've come for the lost sheep of the house of Israel. He said, I've come to die for my sheep, which aren't of this fold, even that are us. He's come to give His life as a ransom for many. Mark chapter 10, verse 45. He said He's going to die. He said He's going to rise again. And He did. And He proved it. And we ought to believe it. And so really this morning, my, my question to you is this. Do you have faith? Or are you fearful? That's what all these examples teach us. Do you have faith? Or are you fearful? Are you desperate? Are you defiant? Like those who lived in the area the Gerasenes were. Listen, right? The, the cross ought to calm all of our fears because Jesus promised to take away our sin. In fact, that's what He, he prophesied, if you will, in the Lord's Supper. Right? When he, when he took the bread and took the cup, He said, this is My body which is broken for you. Do this remember to me. I mean, that's the time of the, the Passover, the, the time of redemption, the time of forgiveness, the time of release, the time of freedom. And so likewise, the cup is the cup of the new covenant. What's the new covenant? But that, that, that God in Christ has forgiven us of our sins and He's wiped us and made us clean. And that's what we get to rejoice in this morning. So I'm going to pray and then we'll do as we have done all the way through out this Lenten season is to worship the Lord in this way. So let me pray. Father, I pray that You would help us, O oh God, to be, um, to be those who are filled with faith, not with fear. Cause us to even think that this Jesus who did these things is the Jesus who we believe and trust in. He's powerful enough to heal. Uh, we have all these difficulties and hardships, things we fear, and Jesus can calm those. Jesus can heal those. And so, Lord, we pray that we'd be filled with faith. And, and meet with us now, Lord. I, I, would, I would plead that You would come and touch us now as we think in a, in a way again about Your death. About everything You accomplished on the cross. It didn't take You by surprise. You knew everything was going to happen. Write down the detail of knowing that You're going to be spit upon. 
You knew that You'd be forsaken and hung upon a cross and You'd bear the wrath of God for our sins. As we just eat this bread and drink this cup, Maybe a time filled with worship as we think of, of the glory of Jesus and His power and yet His grace to come to heal those who are desperate enough to ask and seek. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.